Before I dive in, a little lay of the land. Back in chapter 2, after diffusing the seeming power of our human judgment, Paul began a journey that we're still on. It was out of the land of privileged nation with its insider knowledges and bodily alterations. That was chapter 2 and into 3. It was past the idea of spiritual achievement and its being replaced by an outside-the-law form of righteousness. That was the ending of chapter 3 again. It was in fellowship with the witness and faithfulness, really walking alongside of and in step with Father Abraham. That was chapter 4. It was further on into the original realities of the fall and its seemingly endless outcomes in human existence. That was chapter 5. Then it was toward a lonely hill where a perfect Savior was slain and our sin nature along with him, by the way. And then it was into a tomb wherein he rose and our new selves with him. That was chapter 6. Until now, today, arriving back to the law, which we'll be talking about this week, and then next week, one of Paul's most fascinating sections, I would say this is the most misunderstood rhetorical device he ever employed, and one which we'll be putting right in our own hearts from next week ever onward. Whew. You can say we've come a long way. So let's get going again. I'll be reading in Romans 7, verses 1 through 11, and as always, I'll be reading in the Phillips translation. You know very well, my brothers, for I am speaking to those well acquainted with the subject, that the law can only exercise authority over a man so long as he is alive. The law, the structured religious approach to God of the Old Testament, can only, quote, rule over, be lord of, kuriue, a man for, quote, as long as the time he is alive, i.e. living and breathing. So, Paul starts with a picture of life and death, but then, listen, he'll immediately pivot to an analogy of death and life. Listen. A married woman for example, is bound by law to her husband so long as he is alive. But if he dies, then his legal claim over her disappears. This means that if she should give herself to another man while her husband is alive, she incurs the stigma of adultery. But if after her husband's death, she does exactly the same thing, no one could call her an adulteress for the legal hold over her has been dissolved by her husband's death. Can I be absolutely adult with you about this section? Because you'll notice, as Paul shifts his gaze to rendering one of life's relationships by way of analogy, that he doesn't choose, say, an employer, an employee, or a pair of friends, or even some other legal arrangement between two willing parties. He specifically chooses marriage in both life and death. So, when his metaphorical man and woman got married to each other, what, literally and figuratively, happened? Well, they declared their love and vowed themselves to each other, were witnessed in their commitment by a community, and then totally joined their lives. And here's the adult part. The marriage relationship 
is a unity of hearts in the everyday and also in the spiritual. And yes, it implies a oneness that is consummate, a consummating possession. The two figuratively and also literally enter into complete knowledge of each other, become one. Hence, the reason that only death, not just passing fancy or fleeting attraction, can be the only manner in which this unity is broken. Disunity without death is a death. Which brings us back to where Paul is headed. So let's keep going. There is, I think, a fair analogy here. The death of Christ on the cross has made you dead to the claims of the law. Stop there. Let's be serious thinkers about what we were just considering. If the death of Jesus has made us, quote, dead to the claims of the law, in the context Paul was just talking about, then our former life was, I would say, wedded to the law. We were vowed to the structured religious approach of the Old Testament law as the only potentially way, potential way to access God and his love. I mean, we were witnessed and really escorted along by the examples, both good and bad, of all the Old Testament sinners and saints. We could only join our lives with the law in order to escape sin and God's wrath, and all its ramifications became united with our old self. Essentially, we became one with a system. Yet, according to Paul, the death of Jesus, accomplished once on a particular day in human history, has broken the old unity of sin, flesh, and the law forevermore. A new union in light of that death is possible. This is a new unity. It's a totally new marital relationship. I'll continue reading. And you are free to give yourselves in marriage, so to speak, to another, the one who was raised from the dead, that you may be productive for God. Which brings us back, by the way, to our adult understandings of all this. But now, eternally, with Jesus himself. Finding ourselves in the position, meaning with the newfound possibility of being, quote, again, dead to the claims of the law, what is being offered to us in this second eternal marriage union? Well, we may once for all time and every day declare our love and receive in turn his perfect love, and we may vow ourselves to Jesus and he vice versa. We have been witnessed in this commitment by the community of the triune Godhead. The triune Godhead also bears witness of Jesus' commitment to us. Then, joining our life and heart and spirit and body to the bodily, spiritual, lovely, lively new life of Jesus, the miracle happens. It's a unity of possession, spirit to spirit, life into life, And that's how we're meant to experience the living life of Jesus within. Friends, I repeat, the biblical notion of, quote, knowing and being known is what Paul is after here. The Christian life is nothing if not a full possession. Again, spirit to spirit, life into life. And then one more thing. 
Did you notice the end of verse 4? Let me read it again. That you may be productive for God. The other element of this marriage analogy reality that Paul wants us to consider is the way that marriage often leads to the fruitfulness of production. In fact, listen as he goes on in that compare contrast. I'll keep reading. This is verse 5 now. While we were in the flesh, the law stimulated our sinful passions and so worked in our nature that we became productive for death. I mean, one almost gets the picture of the law, again, the structured religious approach to God, leading to the production of, even the gestation of, an end result of death. Understand, the law and its partner in all this, sin, whose relationship Paul will address starting in verse 7, leads to the fruit of death, which is not a very good use of one's life. And by the way, that was the paradox we talked about last time in chapter 6. Let me keep reading. But now that we stand clear of the law, the claims which existed are dissolved by our death, and we are free to serve God not in the old obedience to the letter of the law, but in a new way, in the Spirit. So, conversely, we get the picture of the living Spirit of Jesus, the the literal life of God, lending to our obedience the actual inward production of the fruits and new life of God. Understand me, Jesus and his partner within us, the Holy Spirit, lead to the exact same fruit that the actual life of Jesus had. You and I consciously obey, yes, and yet our simple, humble acts of willful obedience are met with the full force of heaven and its love in order to beget eternal, never-ending fruit. I mean, friends, this is an awesome use of your everyday life. I'll keep reading. It now begins to look as if sin and the law were very much the same thing. Can this be a fact? Of course it cannot. But it must in fairness be admitted that I should never have had sin brought home to me, but for the law. For example, I should never have felt guilty of the sin of coveting if I had not heard the law saying, thou shalt not covet. But the sin in me, finding in the commandment an opportunity to express itself, stimulated all my covetous desires. For sin, in the absence of the law, has no chance to function technically as sin. As long then as I was without the law, I was, spiritually speaking, alive. But when the commandment arrived, sin sprang to life and I died. The commandment, which was meant to be a direction to life, I found was a sentence to death. The commandment gave sin an opportunity, and without my realizing what was happening, it killed me. Many months ago, I decided it was time for me to personally retranslate the Lord's Prayer so that I could use it daily as a way to first approach Him in the morning. Maybe you've had this experience. I I was so used to the church rendition that saying it with those words was almost the same thing as not saying it at all. It was just far too rote. 
And so here's maybe my favorite couplet of my own little personal version. Listen. And carry us not into temptation, but draw us from evil unto yourself. Did you catch that subtle difference? Draw us from evil unto yourself. I did it that way because the verb there, chrusai, has a a more descriptive meaning than just our old deliver us from evil. The image is more like a rescuer, not only delivering us from evil, but doing that rescuing action by pulling the rescued one close, kind of like hugging them near. And friends, it's been my experience that the closer hugged to the chest of Jesus I am, the less pull the world and self and sin and the evil ones seem to have. So for that reason, and you know my love for a good old inversion to get at opposing aspects of the truth, I want you to hear the new covenant reality of those verses, verses 7 through 11. This is how Jesus has hugged you close, counter-opposing the realities of the fall. So here we go. Verses 7 through 11 in an inversionary reading. It now begins to dawn on us that righteousness and the way of Jesus are very much the same thing. Can this be a fact? Of course it can. For it must in practicality be accepted that of myself, I should never have had righteousness brought within me except by the way of Jesus. For example... I should never have felt invited into the practical goodness of open-handed generosity if I had not seen the perfect example of Jesus' life, who held nothing back. But now his righteousness imparted to me, which presents his life and its way as an actual opportunity, may stimulate my daily life. For righteousness in the presence of the living way of Jesus has every opportunity to function technically as the way I now live. Amazingly then, now that I am invited into the way of Jesus, I am spiritually speaking, eternally alive forever. For when the earthly life of Jesus arrived, righteousness was perfectly exhibited and I am now invited in. The way of Jesus which is the only practicable direction for the human life, I may now put to use as the invitation into life. The way of Jesus gave righteousness the realistic, internal opportunity to guide me. And without my fully realizing what was happening, it set me forever free. Friends, isn't that inversion such a wonderful reminder of the good news of all that Jesus has done for us. I pray it's so in your heart today, and I'm really looking forward to the second half of this chapter. Have a wonderful rest of your day.